Hello, everybody. I'm James Lindsay. You're listening to the New Discourses podcast. I want to talk about the problem. The problem. The kind of, not, maybe it's not the problem. It's kind of a heart of the problem, though. I want to talk about the idea. Actually, I want to develop and kind of modify an idea put forth by Peter Turchin, the idea of elite overproduction. I've talked about this some before. A lot of people ask me if I've been reading Turchin. I need to read Turchin in more detail. I've only kind of cursorily glanced at him in the last little while because I don't really want to. This is actually kind of a window into how I think. I tend to do my own thing first and then go back and then read what other people say after. And so I've had this thought about elite overproduction. I've been thinking about elite overproduction for a number of years, but in various contexts, but particularly um, I've been thinking about it in the context of the woke problem, at least very vigorously for, I don't know, at least a year and a half. I remember having conversations in late 2018 with Mike Nana about it. Um, maybe earlier than that. It's hard to, to date. Um, I kind of know when I first recognized it, it was actually when I was in graduate school. I didn't know it had a name. I just knew that there were a lot of people in grad school who had no business being there. Um, I often, with my, you know, a little bit of imposter syndrome I had going on there, often wondered if I was one myself. Perhaps I was. Um, I named that problem at the time after a character in my graduate school program, who I won't name here because he doesn't need to be attached to this, but he was a quintessential mathematician. My, of course, if you don't know, I was in a PhD program. I completed a PhD program in mathematics, and there was a guy in the department who was a quintessential mathematician, meaning all he wanted to do was math. His output was prodigious. He wanted to publish papers. He wanted to, he woke up in the morning. He wanted to do math. The day went on. He wanted to do math. Evening went on. He wanted to do math. He stayed up late wanting to do math. All he wanted to do was math. And he was very talented at doing math. It wasn't like he was a striver. He was actually very good at doing math. He was a very creative thinker, very sharp thinker, very pre precise thinker, very good in his very kind of niche discipline of mathematics very talented guy. And I thought about this guy. I was like, I can't compete with this guy. Not that I really cared that I can compete with him or not. I thought I can't compete with this guy because I want to do other things. <laughs> I want to do math. I don't mind to be a professional mathematician. Um, I had reservations about the university system at the time as well, but I also looked at this guy and I thought there's no way I can compete with this guy. No way, because he wants to do math 16 hours a day, and I want to do math five or six hours a day. And on a level, he deserves to be a mathematician where I don't. And this was a realization that I had watching this guy. And there were a handful of people of that sort. Um, my office mate did not want to do math constantly. He had other hobbies kind of like myself, but his level of talent was far higher than mine. I still think he's one of the most intelligent people I've ever had the good fortune of meeting in my life, and his mathematical talent was beyond question. He deserved to be a mathematician. He was a great deal deeper interest, a great deal deeper commitment to the field. And then there were lots of people there who just literally had no business being there, many of whom would, would in the end receive advanced degrees, masters or PhD, sometimes double masters, where they did their masters and they attempted to get a PhD and couldn't and end up falling back on a master's uh, consolation prize, if you will. But I witnessed this and I saw this all over the place. I, at one point, just to kind of talk about my experience before, in, in graduate school, my first or second year, I was very, 
I mean, I was in, in math and I had just come out of physics. I was quite smug intellectually. I was young. And I remember walking across campus and these are still going on. They're getting more vigorous and more uh, actually, um, what, what's the word? I don't want to say violent because they're not violent, but uh, provocative, I guess we'll say. I came across there was this protest happening on campus. I was, I was trying to walk to dinner or something and I had to cross through this protest in the middle of this square on campus and I got grabbed by one of the, not like viciously grabbed, but you know, like he got my attention. This guy grabs my attention, starts talking to me. Hey, you want to take a, who, you know, are you a grad student here or are you undergraduate or what? And I said, I'm a grad student. And he said, do you want to take a, that's awesome. We're grad students. We're protesting. Do you want to take up our cause? I was like, tell me about your cause. And he tells me about how they're vigorously underpaid and you can't live on a grad student's wages and blah, blah, blah. And I was mystified, whereas I didn't, I wasn't making a glorious amount of money as a graduate student. In fact, I'm not shy to say that at that first year in my program, my salary was the, a a whopping $13,200 per year, but that was plus all educational expenses. I paid literally zero to the university. Zero. And then I got $13,200. So I'm getting something that according to the bill is worth, I don't know, 35 or some odd thousand dollars per year, plus $13,200 a year. And I'm getting an education out of this. And I have, you know, a grad student's life. So not a lot depending on me. If I screw up, there's no real consequences. Um, except to myself. And so I thought that my salary, though low, was reasonable. And in fact, it increased. The, the, the program was such that it would increase so that my last year I was making nearly $20,000 a year on top of having everything paid, etc. And I didn't think that this was an unreasonable amount of money to pay a graduate student. Granted, it you have to live on the cheap. You have to live thrifty, but that's sort of like baked in. They're paying for your education. And they were protesting this. And I found out, though, that they were getting paid far less than I was. I found that out because they asked me if I didn't mind how much my salary was, my stipend, I should say. It wasn't a salary. And I told them. And they were like, that's so high. Oh, my gosh. And we're only getting whatever. And I had actually left a program where my stipend was $7,500 a year before that, which it turns out to be quite difficult to live on. Um, (laughs) That's actually hard to live on. Uh, but I being smug, looked at this guy and I was like, well, what, what department are you in? And he said, English. And I said, well, that's simple enough. He said, what? I was like, you're in English. You're getting paid that your school's being paid for. I'm in mathematics. I'm getting paid more because skilled labor pays. Very smug, very smug. But what was happening was I was, there was a huge movement there, right? So I'm noticing that this phenomenon kind of around me in graduate school. And then I go off and just to kind of stay in story time before I get to, to Turchin and elite overproduction and what I think about it and what I actually want to talk about in the episode today is I notice as, you know, I get toward the end of my program, but more importantly, as other people around me are getting to the end of their programs. And then it got particularly poignant with somebody else that I knew in a scientific discipline who was getting to the end of his program and they were all applying for jobs and the job application process was ridiculous. We're talking 50, 60, sometimes 200 applicants for a single job. I'm watching the number of people I had actually worked as an adjunct one year while I was in graduate school at another college. 
as an adjunct, I was paid the whopping sum of $1,000 per credit hour. So over the course of that year, based on the courses that I taught, I think I made $7,000. Um, and a full teaching load in such a role would not have added up to, you know, I don't think it would have added up to twenty or even $25,000, somewhere in that range at the most. And that would have been a crushing teaching load. It turns out to be hard to teach 25 credit hours over, over it's not impossible, but it's a hard to teach 25 credit hours over the course of one academic year. I faced this when I was trying to figure out what to do if I wanted to stay in academia. One of the paths that I had offered open to me was to adjunct at a local college until I could find something better. And the offer was horrific. It was roughly the same. I think at that school, I was actually being offered $850 per credit hour. So it would be under $20,000 a year for massively over full-time work. It doesn't even come close to working out to um, minimum wage when this was a doctorate, by the way. Uh, highly specialized doing professional work, you know, supposedly white-collar stuff in the educational field. And so you start looking at all of this. And you start thinking, what is going on? Because there's a ton of people that are caught. And you keep hearing, I heard all these people talking about being caught in the adjunct trap. And I'm watching 200 applicants for a single single position. And then I'm thinking about my friend who didn't get named, who I was like, he deserves to be a mathematician. And I realized he only has a lecturer position. And this guy is one of the most dedicated and talented people. But unfortunately, he's in a relatively niche field. Therefore, he's probably not going to end up with the highfalutin professorship and a solid tenure track position and a solid tenure track salary and eventually tenured salary. And so you have tons of people with PhDs making under $40,000 a year, many of them making under $20,000 a year on no contract. They could be fired at any time. I'm just watching this. And then the application process is brutal. Just absolutely, the competitiveness of these is ridiculous. And I'm talking to people who do hiring and they're saying things like, it's unbelievable what we have to go through in hiring. And the reason it's so unbelievable is because there are so many applicants and literally every one of them deserves the job. We have one position, 60 people make it to the final round or to the, to the second round or whatever. Every one of them deserves the job and we have to pick one from within that. And it's a, that's, that is a brutal process actually for a hiring committee to have to make. Something is badly wrong, is what I figured out, staring at all of this situation. This goes in concert with the observation, again, young, fairly smug, although I think my assessment was probably right, that literally when I was teaching, my, my, my assessment was probably by 2006 or so at the, at the latest, I had already decided that approximately 50% of the people in college should not be in college. They have no business. And it's not because they're not talented enough or not capable or whatever, although that is for many of them actually true. It's that it's not even serving their best interests. It's not even what they should be doing. One more kind of like story in this regard, and I'll kind of get into what I want to talk about more specifically, how it ties into like wokeness in particular. Um, I remember again around the same time, so we're talking this would have been later 2000s, probably before 2010, but it might have been just after 2010. Back when NPR wasn't a complete propaganda machine for leftist co uh, causes, I was listening to NPR as I was driving, and there was an episode that came on talking about a problem 
that was going on in universities and trying to figure out what to do with this problem and what this problem was, and it turns out that this is kind of what Turchin is talking about with elite overproduction. It was saying that universities were failing in their responsibilities to advise students properly. Imagine NPR saying that. I know that this was like a decade ago, so they still could say things like this. And the reason they were failing to advise students properly, there was some massive failure in the university pipeline, was because they were massively overproducing graduates in fields with very expensive, you know, student loan debts, massively overproducing graduates in fields that the economy couldn't absorb. So there was somehow a broken link between the college advisor, college administrator and advisement system, if we want to call it a system, and the market into which the graduates would be entering. And they used particularly at the time the example of veterinary medicine. And they talked about the problem of veterinary medicine. And at the time, and I don't know what the statistics are now, I do know, however, because a friend of mine did graduate from veterinary school not that long ago, that it's very expensive. We're talking, I think, that this person is over $350,000 or something like that in debt, or was it, at the point of graduation anyway, for undergraduate plus uh, veterinary school work. And what it said was that they were producing 11 graduates of veterinary colleges, not even pre-vet, 11 graduates of veterinary school per veterinarian that the economy could absorb. And they talked about this being a particular problem in veterinary medicine because unless you end up working with something like a farm or whatever in big animal veterinary medicine particularly, a lot of people want to be small animal vets. They want to do dogs and cats and everybody's little turtle and whatever their little pets are. Um, mice and hamsters and all these fun things and doggos. That's what they want, doggos. And they love doggos, so they want to be a veterinarian. Um, well, what it turns out is most people that go into veterinary medicine in that regard open their own private practice, or many people do. And what happens when you do that in, in an oversaturated economy is you just bring down, like supply goes up too high, the basic economics. Uh, my microecon class taught me all about this. Supply goes, Supply goes up, demand stays roughly the same, price of service goes down. You have an oversaturated market, so price of service goes down. So what happens is all of, not only are, are, does the veterinarian that I'm talking about that starts in the field, they got their degree, they go out and start their business. Not only are they unlikely to be able to succeed in that business and therefore become functionally underemployed, like our adjunct trap underemployed people, or our graduate who's having to work at say target underemployed person or whatever, or maybe with a doctorate, um, not only do you have that problem, but you also have the problem that now the value of veterinary services goes down for all of the veterinar veterinarians in the area. And so other veterinarians are impacted by this oversaturated market problem. This is an issue. And what this piece on NPR was talking about was trying to figure out why there's a, if we think of it as like a chain from, you know, high school graduates, the education pipeline, I guess chain and pipeline are a broken metaphor, but we'll go with it. We have this chain of, 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 of events leading from graduating high school, advisement at the beginning of college, going through college, advisement if you're going into graduate or professional school, if that happens to be your path, into career, whichever, wherever you break off of the educational superhighway into career, somewhere there's a broken link that's not properly producing 
graduates that are suited to the economy. The economy is not dictating what, who we're educating, who we're training, professionals that we're generating. And plus, there's just too damn many people being told to go to college anyway. It's not in their best interest, probably. And a lot of them aren't even suited to be there. So this is you know, another diversion, people who would be highly successful in other industries, whether service or trade or, or whatever, are being shunted off into colleges. And so this creates this massive problem. These are all like pieces of a puzzle that led me to be thinking about this elite overproduction problem. And this is what Turchin's actually talking about, where he talks about so-called elite overproduction. Um, the idea basically describes a condition in society. This is reading off of the literally like three sentence Wikipedia entry, just to give you a quick overview. Um, the condition in society, which is producing too many potential elite members relative to its ability to absorb them into the power structure. This Peter Turchin hypothesizes is a cause for social instability as those left out of power feel aggrieved by their low status. And this is exactly what I was observing. I was observing, in fact, a lot of pissed off grad students at protest, for example, pissed off people with PhDs who refuse to go get a job happily or whatever at Target or in the service industry generally, being a barista as the joke goes. And what we had is a grotesque, what we, what we have had now is a grotesque problem of so-called elite overproduction. And where Turchin points out, or as Wikipedia summarizes for him, that this creates a uh, it, society is producing too many potential elite members relative to its ability to absorb them into the power structure. And this is a cause for social instability as, and this is a key part as those left out of the power or out of power feel aggrieved by their low status. So basically what's happening is elite overproduction. I decided was producing snobs. It was producing snobs who cannot properly be employed, but are very, very convinced of their high intellectual and professional status that the market will not bear for them. And that social grievance that that generates is exactly the kind of breeding ground where wokeness is going to thrive. And so I actually want to reframe the idea of elite overproduction though completely in this episode. This episode is going to be about not elite overproduction, but rather what I want to call bourgeois overproduction. Having read lots of neo-Marxist and some Marxist and uh, a great deal of woke literature, but neo-Marxist and Marxist being more relevant to this, I've become very kind of sensitive to the idea of bourgeois and bourgeois values and the role that those play in that line of thinking. And so I, I, I really think that where we look at the idea of elite, we actually are missing something. Uh, when, Turchin says that he's producing potential elites. Well, that's what I want to talk about, because I don't think that Marx was correct about what he defined as the bourgeoisie. Of course, it's bourgeoisie is a French word, by the way. You may have noticed Marx was a German. Um, bourgeois, why is he using a French word? If he invented the word, he didn't invent the word. The word was in use probably even almost, I mean, it was certainly in use for the preceding century throughout all of the 18th century in France, because it's a French word. And it has roots all the way back to the 11th century, where it referred to certain classes and kinds of people. Um, this isn't supposed to be a comprehensive history of that. And what I wanted to contend was that by sending way too many people to college in particular, though it's not the only avenue, it's the primary avenue, we are actually not producing too many so-called potential elites. We're producing too many 
bourgeois people. And my definition for bourgeois differs from Marx and is false elites. Okay, they are false elites. It is the tyranny of the false elites that we are living under. Okay, so let's kind of summarize what's going on. First, I'll talk about, you know, for example, the just to kind of create a touch point here, you read in the neo-Marxist literature, but you also read under Stalin, you read under Mao, and you read under Lenin. Lenin, of course, of course, Stalin and Mao are both Leninists and their structure. I think woke is Leninism 4.0, as I've talked about in the past. So we have the same kind of thing going on. Um, maybe wokeness is Leninism 5.0, maybe Leninism 4.0 was actually uh, neo-Marxism, but it didn't really work. I don't know, but we can say it either way. I think 4.0 works. So here we are, you read in these literatures again and again and again, bourgeois values, bourgeois values, bourgeois values, bourgeois values. And so there's some kind of values that get associated with stuff like Philistinism and uh, basically being a snob uh, and a lot of like belief in one's own like superiority uh, that are associated with the idea of, of, of being bourgeois. Now I say that Marx had it wrong because Marx, I'll just read actually to make it very sim simple. This isn't Marx himself. Um, this is from Marxist.org and their gigantic glossary slash encyclopedia of terms, uh, bourgeoisie and bourgeois society are the two um, entries here. Of course, bourgeoisie doesn't say much. It just says the class of people in bourgeois society who own the social means of production as their private property, i.e. as capital. That's all it says about bourgeoisie. So it's the class of people in a society that is itself bourgeois, i.e. as bourgeois values operating it, and they are the people who own the social means of production as their private property, and specifically as capital in that. That's the bourgeoisie, the people in bourgeois society who own the social means of production. And um, what is bourgeois society? Again, it's a society simply that has bourgeois values, but doesn't tell you much unless you know what bourgeois values are. But they write in the encyclopedia here, bourgeois society is the social formation in which the commodity relation, the relation of buying and selling, has spread into every corner of life. In other words, they just define it as capitalism. In fact, they say bourgeois society or capitalism in parentheses there with scare quotes around capitalism, which is a very interesting thing. The family and the state still exist, but the family is successively broken down and atomized, more and more resembling a relationship of commercial contract rather than one of gen genuinely expressing kinship and the care of one generation for the other. The state retains its essential instruments of violence, but more and more comes under the sway of commercial interests reduced to acting as a buyer and seller of services on behalf of the community. The ruling class in bourgeois society is the bourgeoisie who owns the means of production as private property, despite the fact that that the productive forces have become entirely socialized and operate on the scale of the world market. The producing class in bourgeois society is the proletariat, a class of people who have nothing to sell but their capacity to work since all the means of production belong to the bourgeoisie. Workers have no choice but to offer their labor power for sale to the bourgeoisie. The system of buying and selling labor power is called wage labor, and it is characteristic of bourgeois society, though it has been around since the peasant revolt of 1381. The classic form of wage labor is payment for work by the hour or week. Nowadays, many workers work on the basis of contracts and piecework, but these forms only disguise the underlying relationship, which remains that of wage labor. Money and all forms of credit reach their highest development in bourgeois society. As a result, life in bourgeois society happens to people in much the same way as the weather happens to people, with money flowing around apparently according to its own laws. To put this another way, 
In bourgeois society, there is a fetishism of commodities. Just as tribal peoples believed that their lives were being determined by trees and animals and natural forces possessing human powers, in bourgeois society, people's lives are driven by money and other commodities whose value is determined by extra-mundane forces. Instead of ethics and morality being governed by traditional systems of belief and imagined spiritual forces, there is just the ethic of cash payment. Quite the little... uh tract here. They've got a bourgeois democracy as well, um, which we could talk about how they believe that communism provides for an ideal democracy versus a bourgeois democracy, and a bourgeois democracy is democracy that really only serves a bourgeoisie, um, and everybody else has false consciousness or is excluded from true democracy or ideal democracy or real democracy under communism, where everybody has all their systems of power removed from them, this liberation theory, by the way. All the systems of power are removed, or the capitalist system of power, if it's Marxism, is removed, and then everybody is, can then actually fully participate in the democracy. That's true or ideal democracy, or real democracy. Under communism is the only place that it exists. Bourgeois democracy is what we're stuck with otherwise. And you see this like throughout Lenin, you see this throughout Stalin and Mao, where they talk about the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie, the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie, bourgeois values. Everybody has these values. These are these values of what would kind of be largely the so-called middle and upper middle class. Um, and they are not usually characterized, you know, in positive, in positive phrasing. You know, they're identified, like I said, with, with Philistinism and hedonism, uh, and kind of self-interest and, you know, getting rich just to get rich and things like this, uh, having, social and political control over other people. They're not really considered to be great values. So let's back up historically, though. So we've heard kind of the Marxist view of what bourgeoisie means, and I think Marx overstepped. I think that where he basically identifies elites equal bourgeois, everybody else equals proletariat, I don't think that that's actually an accurate characterization. I think that there are actually genuine elites, and then there are the bourgeoisie or the false elites. And I think below that, when you look at the working class, you actually have the working class. And the proletariat is, in fact, not the working class. The working the proletariat is the so-called awakened working class that believes this tripe from Marxism. And so I think that these are more complicated terms, and there's things outside, and that's part of the reason Marx's analysis isn't that good um, for anything that he may have actually identified. Uh preceding Marx, where he actually adopted the term from, though, uh, bourgeoisie was a French citizen class. And uh, it was a very important element of the French citizenry in the 18th century leading up to the French Revolution, which began in 1789. Uh, it was kind of a French feudal order, order kind of idea. And um, they, they, these people were sort of you know, you could call them princelings if you want or whatever, but that's not quite right. They were people who were not in the nobility, which under the social order of the day was the ruling classes. They were not of the nobility, but they were kind of in a merchant class or almost middlemen in very many cases. They did various things and managed. They were not, were not, however, farmers or laborers or craftsmen or tradesmen. They were in this kind of merchant commerce level class in between, and they managed to make themselves quite rich. As a matter of fact, and the a, a historically kind of strong claim is that part of what led to the French Revolution, the Marxists say that it was a bourgeois revolution, but part of what led to the French the, the French Revolution was that great greater and greater amounts of social instability were arising as the ruling class lost favor, the bourgeoisie kind of 
pushed itself into a position of being this fake ruling class that had the money and power and was marrying into and declaring itself royalty, etc., and was kind of dictating the course of society while uh, basically exploiting the peasants underneath, and um, that this led to dramatic economic and social instability, especially after a series of bad winters led to some famines and bad mismanagement led to uh, more famines and people becoming quite angry and disgusted. But what kind of characterizes the Marxist analysis of the French Revolution, which I think can be called into some question, is that the, um, the bourgeoisie strongly resented the ruling class being over them because they saw themselves as the people who were actually producing the majority of the economic activity and economic strength of the late French feudal era. And so great social instability is also engendered in that kind of resentment-laden space where you have people who are not the rulers of society, who view themselves as kind of the most important members of society, but in that case are literally, except by, you know, kind of tricks like marrying into or just falsely declaring themselves as nobility, are, are actually excluded from the, the true uh, ruling layer of society. One could argue that um, the aristocracy is also the bourgeoisie. That's a, a way of looking at it. And it's the thing that's technically, the aristocracy could kind of be like the ruling class combined with the bourgeoisie. And then the bourgeois are the, the ones that are resentful of the fact that they can't actually be the rulers. So to identify, as this Marxist theory does, that the ruling class, as they wrote, the ruling class in bourgeois society is the bourgeoisie, who owns the means of production as private property, I think misses something. For example, I don't think that in our society, I don't think that Jeff Bezos is bourgeoisie. <laughs> he's an elite. Uh, he's an elite. But um, you could say he owns the means of, of production here. But the thing is, and maybe his values, which align with these bourgeois values that Marx is complaining about and that you see associated with the bourgeoisie, um, I mean, he's exerting massive, massive power and influence. Uh, so... He's actually, though, earned his way to the position that he's in, in a kind of very real sense. Although, you know, you can say whatever you want about his, his evil business practices. I'm not a big fan myself. But this is a big difference from somebody who is not actually producing very much. And this is what I want to focus on, this false elite of, I don't care about ruling. I care about these false elites, people who are not actually producing much, who but hold themselves up. I think that's actually the problem. And so when I talk about bourgeois overproduction, those are the people I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people who went to college, people who got graduate degrees, maybe myself included, but I think my values have squared up and got, got straight, I don't know, who hold themselves too good for society, but are yet dramatically underemployed by that society, right? So I'm really focused on the ones where, where Turchin points out that they didn't make it, right? It's producing too many potential elite members, as, he, as, as Wikipedia notes, relative to its ability to absorb them into the power structure. So he's talking about the power structure rather than the um, than, than financial winning or whatever, financial return. Uh, and this is a cause for social instability. Instability is those left out of the power feel aggrieved by their low status. They, in other words, think that they're better than they are. 
And this is when I talk about the country club, when I talk about the very smart people. These are bourgeois people, and they typically have bourgeois values. They are a fake elite. They think that they can swing with the elites, but they can't swing with the elites because they don't have what it takes. They don't take the level of risks, for example, necessary. True elites are people who have taken risks and, and, and won uh, because they've taken risks, and they will be willing to they've positioned themselves to be able to take the losses. False elites don't really take these risks, and that's why they're resentful. They're mad that other people who seem to be low, lesser than them, you know, they say things like the world is run by C students, which might actually be true, but, um, and also Ivy League graduates who got A's that probably should have been C's, but they, I mean, here I am being bourgeois, look at me. But what, what you have is, they, they say things like this, but it, it belies the fact that they haven't taken the risks, they haven't taken the steps necessary to ascend to the level that they believe themselves to be. So where Turchin's idea of elite overproduction is fine, and it's it's phrased well, um, the problem isn't elite overproduction, it is bourgeois overproduction, which means failed elite overproduction. It is the production of too many people who believe themselves to be elites who can't be elite, who don't make it to elite. And when you create a, situ a situation in society where you're producing too many of these people, you've got a big problem on your hands. And I think that one of the things that history is teaching us again and again is that the overproduction of bourgeois people, in other words, these false elites, so people who believe themselves to be at the upper crust of society, whether virtuously, morally, or uh, ta in talent, typically, but not in in actual attainment, those people become very dangerous. And when you've created a situation in society where you're making too many of those people for, whether it's the economy, the power structure, the market, whatever it is to absorb, you have a big problem. Why? Well, here are some things that happen when you have too many of these um, kind of overeducated fuckheads is a good way to phrase it also. Pardon your ears. Uh, whatever. Um, pardon my phrasing, I guess. So what happens is this creates a very competitive environment where people are basically scrabbling for crumbs. Let them eat cake, right? Uh, this is this, this creates a very competitive environment where high talent people are scrabbling for a very small piece of pie, and usually just crumbs that people are actually making real risks, getting positioning themselves in in, in the right places, having the real luck. Uh, in some cases. Are, are able to drop or, or create space for. And so this is a factory for a few different things. One is social resentment. It's not me who sucks, it's the system that's screwing me. If the system were more fair, I wouldn't be in this stupid position. Everybody would realize how talented I am. Everybody would realize how smart I am. Everybody would realize how sharp my analysis is. And there's a lot of resentment I've been in this position myself. I've been there myself. I used to be, this is why I think I'm cured of this. I used to be in this kind of chattering class mindset. And if people would just recognize my talent, and it didn't happen until I started taking risks, until I started doing things where I wasn't, wasn't afraid to offend or wasn't afraid to lose, lose the support of other people. It didn't happen until I started to take risks. So I started to act for myself, not too concerned or connected to what other people wanted me to do. I didn't have to play by the rules anymore. And yeah, it also probably involves getting lucky. And in many cases, it does just come down to luck. But it's not me who sucks. It's the system who sucks. That is a, that is a concept that festers and breeds in a 
bourgeois situation where not the capitalist elites, but the people who wish that they could be recognized as being at least as good, if not better than those people, but who can't actually achieve anything. That's a festering ground for, for that line of thought in that group of people. The more underemployed they are, the worse. If this person's a freelancer, we're, we're going to bump right into another position. So these people now, remember what, what we saw, right, with the Marxian analysis here, right? So we'll go up to where, where it says the bourgeoisie. He says, it says, the encyclopedia says, the class of people in bourgeois society who own the social means of production. And then they go on as, as private property, but that's beside the point. Let's stop there. Who own the social means of production. My friend Mike Nana very brilliantly phrased this, that Marxism was about having people seize the means of economic production, whereas wokeness is about, particularly the postmodern aspect of wokeness, though, is about having people seize the means of cultural production. I think it's actually more of a neo-Marxist thing, but we were talking mostly in postmodern terms at the time. We were thinking of discourse analysis and what Mike calls discourse engineering, where you're going to change how you use the words. I'm recording this actually, I think, on birthing person day. Um, so we're talking about, you know, controlling the way that people think by using words, discourse engineering, you engineer the discourses, and then you can obtain the power. Joseph Piper wrote about this in 1971 under abuses of language, abuses of power. Um, it's a very important essay, but Marxists wanted to seize the means of economic production. In other words, who own the social means of production as their private property. They wanted to seize the private property, i.e. as capital. They wanted to seize the means of economic production and share that with who the people who they saw as the proletariat, which I said is the awakened, but not the entire working class. Marx didn't distinguish well enough between them, uh, in my opinion, although uh, I think he was aware of the distinction. Um, but they're the, what we have now are people who want to seize the means of cultural production. How do you do that? Well, by writing. So you can't quite get that sweet $130,000 gig writing as a columnist for the New York Times or writing for, I don't know how much they pay you, writing as a columnist for the Atlantic. You can't quite get into that, that racket. You can't quite get to that level. Maybe you get a piece in one of them here and there once or twice every year or two. But you can't quite, you're never going to be a columnist. You don't have a syndicated thing, but some some moron that's up there does and how come that person gets to write there and I don't and you're you so you're 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 scrabbling for 50 100 150 250 sometimes 400 dollars for an article scrabbling to make a modest living a lot of them live in places like Brooklyn and, and in New York City where they can barely afford on this kind of existence they're writing books that make some money, but not a lot of money. So it's not enough to like keep them going. It's not their like a real career, but it takes a ton of time, a ton of talent, a ton of work the type of books. They write are very smart, very insightful, blah, blah, blah. And why won't people just, where's their break? Why won't people recognize them? It must be the system who sucks, not me. And so what do they write about? Well, they write about their stuff and increasingly they write about stuff that, um, reflects that social grievance. Their analysis can easily turn into that kind of curdled envy that resentment that's building up within this group. The bourgeoisie is the seat of resentment in a society. And if you get too much resentment in a society, you're going to start tearing society apart with that resentment. And these people usually have the means, they usually have the influence, they usually have just enough of the status and the money and the ability to influence people to do some real damage with their with their resentment when they have it. So you have this breeding ground for that, and then a lot of them are in means of cultural production. Lots of them. Teachers. All those underemployed adjuncts. 
journalists, all those freelancing journalists just trying to make their big break. And then, unfortunately, there's a huge pressure. We used to call it when it, if it bleeds, it leads. You could call it if it bleeds, it misleads. I've said that before. Um, there's this huge pressure within that market and the information economy that we occupy now, especially via social media and with the proliferation of democratization of media, where anybody can publish anything. Where salacious, yellow journalistic, grievance-mongering hot takes. I've said before that a quick summary, like the quickest meme version of what is critical theory is hot takes. That's the meme version of critical theory is hot takes. And it turns out that hot takes go viral, whereas careful, expensive, sober analysis often doesn't. And it takes a lot more time to produce whereas hot takes can be written very quickly, almost formulaically. So what you create then is a situation in this large, remember we have all these graduates coming out of colleges, all these graduates with degrees, all these graduates who refuse to get or you know have a, 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 plebs, a plebeian job, they're not going to be a poor, they're not going to succumb to the indignity of not having a good job in the service economy. They went to college to get a good job after all. They got brainwashed on this idea. The point of going to college is so you don't have to have that kind of job. I was told that literally my entire life growing up. The reason that you go to college is so you don't have to do this kind of work. And it would either be manual labor, trade labor, or service labor. The point of going to college is so you don't have to do this. You've been brainwashed. This is my, you get your golden ticket in the form of a diploma so that you don't have to become some low status, low level person. And psychologically, you can very easily get locked into this. And now you're operating in an environment in which you're, not everybody, but there's a fomentation of resentment, resentment properly, and grievance against a system that must be, it's not me, it must be the system. It's in means of cultural production, or in other words, a social means of production for a, a society that is so culturally focused and hot takes rule the day. There's a strong incentive system that pushes the exact kind of resentment-laden, critical, problematizing um, narratives that tear society apart, but also they get viral think pieces for half-assed journalists who probably never should have went to college in the first place. But now they've got their journalism degree or they have their whatever degree, and they write their little grubby pieces, and they write lots of their little grubby pieces, and the hotter the take, the more viral it goes. And sometimes they uncover valuable things, but for the most part, it's boilerplate. And the problem is that the easiest thing to do, as has been mocked by many comedians, I think Ryan Long had one of the better skits on this, or sketches, I don't know what the difference is, I'm not a comedian. He had a video. And he comes out and he shows, you know, very much like how to write how to he's like how to blog or whatever and it's like he just has words and he just puts them together there used to be that thing where they have the whiteboard of like topic location in the world or whatever and they literally throw sorry for my sensitive listeners literally throw a suction cup dildo and have it stick to the to the whiteboard and that's the article they're going to write and it's all just kind of this nonsense critical theory boilerplate that you write how you know women in the upper midwest uphold white supremacy by drinking lattes. And it's so formulaic, like you can literally do this. You can just string any of these kinds of things together by observing dog humping in urban dog parks in Portland, Oregon. You can just string ideas together like this and problematize. 
And I'm telling you, this is when you are in a position where you are scrabbling for money and in particular scrabbling for status as an underemployed, overeducated, false elite, in other words, bourgeoisie, producing very little, in fact, producing almost nothing. The primary, the primary thing that a member of the bourgeoisie, a very smart person, the primary thing that that person produces is interest in their own brand. Their main product is interest in their own brand. That's about all they produce. They produce a lot of noise. They produce a lot of words. They produce a lot of videos. They produce a lot of whatever it is. Maybe, I, I mean, if you think it's me, that's fine. I'm playing this game too. The main thing that they produce is interest in their own brand, their own analysis. And it's not much of a product. So this is where you start looking at the, the, the ruling class isn't going to be real big. They're not going to let these people up. They're not producing anything of value. That's why they never make it. They don't produce anything of value. The, re, the working class actually resents the hell out of them because not only do they produce nothing of value, the stuff that they produce gets weirder and weirder and weirder and projects their weird values, their weird insecurities, their weird psychopathologies, their weird neuroses, their whatever it happens to be into the world as though these, like, you know, we see all these articles where they have to rationalize, like, oh, we just saw Jill Filipovich or whatever her name is saying, I want to see more articles from women who thought it was a mistake to have children when they were young. It's like, you're just projecting your own psychopathology into the world. This is bourgeois activity. This is a class of people in bourgeois society who own the social means of like the Marxian analysis and even the neo-Marxian analysis applies. I, I said that when I did my series on on um, on uh, Herbert Marcuse's repressive tolerance. I was just so shocked, like, oh my God, what would Marcuse think of his own thing taking off this way? And the truth is, woke capital, for example, is a super commodification and repackaging and selling of these so-called revolutionary ideas is so preposterous. Um but the thing is, is like their, their analysis isn't actually correct because it's all based in this resentment based mind uh, mindset, uh, that does not actually connect to what's really going on with real people or that understands real people or that understands the real capacities of society or that like when you start lumping together working class people with this so-called agitated activist irritated working class, the proletariat, and you start lumping together the actual capitalists who are building society, not always through the best of means. We could talk about the old company towns. We can talk about 16 tons and what do you get another day older and deeper in debt. Uh, we could talk about that. We could also talk about Jeff Bezos and his, his Amazon things. We could talk about Apple and their slave labor around the world. Um, you can talk about a lot of things, uh, where, where there's some, some big issues going on. They're not always saying through the best means, but there's a difference between the real elite and the false elite. And the false elite is the problem. The overproduction of the false elite, which has primarily been a product of our university system that have increasingly sought to retain people that they can bring into a false elite by giving them degrees because they focused more and more on student retention on keep getting, keeping, and graduating more students, even students that have no business with a college degree, who are not going to be employable with their college degrees, many of whom are going to have degrees in the so-called liberal arts or the humanities or the social sciences who aren't going to have any other real options to make it, who really want to make a dent in the world. They want to change things. They've been brought in with a little bit of critical theory that's increased over time to where they, the point to the world isn't just to understand it, it's to change it. And what do they have to do? They have to write think pieces because they can get 50 bucks or 200 bucks or 400 bucks or whatever for a think piece. 
And they're constantly flooding the environment with more and more and more and more of this nonsense, kind of creating bubbles of nonsense that then get picked up by the kind of same strivers that are appearing throughout, you know, further up in the, the means of social and cultural production. So what I say, or what I think is, and this is why the university problem has been so significant to the to getting us in this woke environment that we're in, is that the danger isn't so-called elite overproduction. It's a good phrase for it, to be honest, but it's it's actually that the process of elite overproduction leads to bourgeois overproduction. It leads to the production of people who don't actually produce any meaningful product except noise and signs that point to their noise. And meanwhile, as these people are, statistically speaking, largely unsuccessful, some of them are more successful than others. Often the people who are successful are not always the most talented. Um, Some of them are very annoying or whatever. You often get a lot of resentment. By the way, if you keep listening to this and think that you want to accuse me of being in this, I told you you're fine. You can do that if you want to. I don't think I am because I don't resent anything now. I had my resentment. I got over my resentment. I just want to do my thing. And actually, then I just want to get out of the game. Like I don't have a brand to point to because I want my brand to die. I actually do. I mean, you're not supposed to say stuff like that. You're not supposed to do stuff like that. I want the problem to go away and then I can go away. I can go back to having a relatively private and (laughs) much more quiet and simple life than I have to deal with right now. So maybe I am this, maybe I'm not. You judge for yourself, but I certainly don't have any resentment. Um, I have mockery, but that's a different thing Uh, because I see this dynamic. And what I think is that the overproduction of this, I think that a society can only bear so many percent of these people doing so much of what it is. And I think that the internet and the universities kind of two huge elements. The universities, because of bad reasons that could have been avoided, the internet, because of the structural reasons that it created that could not have been avoided, has created a position to where so-called bourgeois overproduction, this profl- uh, proliferation of a increasingly large, increasingly underemployed, increasingly um, resentful bourgeoisie, and then also, I mean, usually I characterize the, the very smart people as having these kinds of values, but being useful idiots uh, for the actually resentful ones. Um, this kind of position uh, is a very dangerous one for society. I don't know what the percentage is. I think that, you know, societies in general are actually the, 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 the norms, the so-called system, if you will, of the systemic structure of society, I think really is a set of things that tries to solve problems of percentages. Like the free rider problem is a core problem to societies. You can only have so many free riders in a society. A society can only support so many free riders, at which point it becomes too expensive to keep them going and it causes too much resentment by people being allowed to get away with doing nothing. So on the one hand, you have to figure out how to treat these people humanely. Like maybe it's 1% of the population is just going to be free riders anyway. So you think, well, the most humane thing to do is just let them free ride, just pay them, you know, something like welfare to just exist. But the problem is, is when you do that, you incentivize other people to free ride too. the people who are close to that edge. Why should they work? And so you have this problem there. So it becomes very difficult how to solve. But what you want to do is you need to figure out what the, you, you know, what you have to be aware of. I don't see you have to figure anything out. What you have to be aware of is that society can only absorb so many free riders. And if you create bad policy around free riders, what you're going to do as a result is you're going to incentivize more free riders and more free riders are going to tank your society eventually. Same thing is true, not just of free riders, but of socio- sociopaths and psychopaths. 
they're highly functional. Like high functioning psychopaths are extremely valuable because they literally will take the t kinds of risks that end up building things like Amazon. <laughs> I don't know if I'm not saying Bezos is this. I'm just saying the, the, the kinds of decisions that have to be made and often in many cases to build super big, super valuable entities sometimes are pretty, pretty gross. Um, and enabling high functioning psychopathy and enabling high functioning sociopathy, but constraining its ability to damage people and constraining its ability to damage anything uh, is another problem. There's only so much of that a society can tolerate. And we've, you know, run into a problem, I think, also with the internet. Jordan Peterson has pointed out that female aggression uploads very well. I tried to nuance that. Well, I think it is true. I think also that um, psychopathy, so sociopathy, uh, certain personality disorders, certain other psychopathy, uh, psych uh, psychopathies, or not psychopathy, psychopathologies, and uh, certain forms of bad behavior upload extraordinarily well also. Um, bad moods upload real well, it turns out. Uh, deconstruction uploads real well, it turns out. Uh, so this has caused kind of an algae bloom of different types of aggression that a non-digital, non-socially connected society, uh, social media connected society didn't really have to deal with. And again, I think that social stability depends on there being only a certain percentage that's able to be born. And so you have a problem there. Well, the same thing is also true of bourgeois people. I think, in fact, they provide a valuable service. They produce noise. They produce things for people to read. They produce, you know, some insight. They produce some value. But again, you can't have too many of them. This is why Turchin calls it elite overproduction. Well, bourgeois overproduction is the consequence of elite overproduction, and the bourgeois overproduction is the one that's actually the problem. Um, that's where the actual problem lies, is in the production of a large so-called bourgeois population that becomes a problem. So kind of just to bounce back to Lenin for a second, uh, so, so Marx leading to Lenin, Marx believed that what would happen is that you could awaken class consciousness in the working class. They would become the proletariat, and the proletariat would then seize the means of production in an organic kind of revolution from the uh, bourgeoisie, which I would say is the combination of the actual bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie as strivers, uh, false elites, together with the true capitalist elites and ruling elites of society. And then this would usher in an era of socialism and capitalism. And of course, it wasn't working. So Lenin's big genius, which is why the Russian Revolution succeeded and none of the other ones did uh, at the time, was he realized that this isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen. There's a name for this. I used to know what it was in the Marxist literature. Uh, stagism or something like this. I think, yeah, stagism. And so, and, and vanguardism also. So Lenin, big surprise, was actually somebody who would have been identified as being within the bourgeoisie. And his belief was, well, well you, the, the stupid working class is never really going to operationalize itself. They can't form leadership. They can't organize. They don't have the time and energy because of the society to learn the proper level of theory. So what it's going to take is awakened members of the bourgeois class to step in and become kind of the administers. So Leninism is the idea that we're going to have these administrators, this, this group of people who are the awakened class conscience, conscious people within the bourgeoisie who are now going to become a vanguard that's going to usher the Bolsheviks became the vanguard under Lenin to usher in the socialist revolution that Marx thought would appear organically. And then what would happen is that that, that would lead to eventually, you know, a perfect communist state. And then 
Marxists today criticize Leninism and they criticize Stalinism for their stagist approach, which is that we're going to have this managed economy stage or managed society stage where people who are actually bourgeois, but who understand the, the proper theory, Marxist theory, are going to usher society forward. And through this revolution, and of course, it didn't work out real well. It didn't work out in Russia. It didn't work out again in Russia. It didn't work out in China. It didn't work out in Vietnam. It didn't work out in Cambodia. It didn't work out anywhere that it was tried. It didn't work out in Cuba. It didn't work out anywhere that it's been tried. It turns out that this doesn't actually work, but it gives the Marxists a really powerful little tool where they can say real communism has never been tried. Why hasn't real communism ever been tried? Because they kept trying to do this stagist thing, this thing that was going to go on stages where people who are actually bourgeois and actually were corrupted by their bourgeois values are going to take command of the thing by claiming that they understand the theory correctly, but they still couldn't break away from the bourgeois values because they weren't true members of the working class awakened in a proletariat, blah, 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 blah. So what happens if you look under the situation of Lenin, the way that he was able to do this, how was he able to succeed? You know, not that many people are going to be in this very small cadre of allegedly bourgeois people who have taken up the revolutionary consciousness because, you know, Marxian theory is not totally wrong that the bourgeois people don't want to break the society where they get to be bourgeois. Uh, that's one of their, their ideas is that bourgeois values are self-reinforcing and self-protectionist. Well, the way that they do it, Lenin created this thing called the intelligentsia. And the intelligentsia were people who understood the theory, but they were of higher levels or higher orders in society. In other words, they were bourgeois people who understood and agreed with the theory in one form or another. And this is where your bourgeois overproduction comes in, because those people either become the intelligentsia, the so-called chattering class, or... They, they, they should say that those people become that and they either whitewash or downplay or apologize for or normalize or advance um, intellectual, acceptable, popular arguments that make the revolutionary ideology seem more acceptable than it is. So here we get to my very smart people who are in this bourgeois overproduced class who are now either whitewashing or more often apologizing for or downplaying this attempted woke revolution by refusing to take seriously what's actually happening around them, trying to intellectualize it, trying to write smart think pieces about it, trying to protect their ability to keep writing smart think pieces about it, and to position themselves as people who know why it's bad but wouldn't dare be caught in the embarrassment of looking hysterical about it uh, by actually just taking it seriously. And so what you end up with is this kind of category of both intelligentsia and the chattering class useful idiots who are born in this position, the ones that are most resentful, like I said, this this overproduced bourgeoisie, the bourgeois class, is a breeding ground. It's not they're not all resentful, but it's a breeding ground for resentment. So the more the ones that are more resentful become apologists, they become advancers of the ideology, they become fellow travelers, water carriers, whatever the words you want to use. And then the ones who are less resentful remain clueless and intellectualize and uh, apologize for and downplay the role of the revolution. And this can be, as was in the case under Lenin in Russia with the Bolsheviks, this can be just enough to allow a very small minority of revolutionary yahoos to take over and destroy a civilization to tremendous calamity. And so this is why I feel like I'm very concerned about the idea that we've been engaging kind of in you know, Turchin calls it elite overproduction, but the problem within elite overproduction is bourgeois overproduction. We've been overwhelmingly 
like we've been in high gear of in, in the West of bourgeois overproduction in a very meaningful sense, not in this, like I'm not a Marxist, don't worry, uh, but in a very meaningful sense for a while now, decades now, like I said, I grew up from the 1980s hearing routinely that you go to college so that you can get a good job, so you don't have to be one of those people, a deplorable, a working class schlub, a pleb, whatever it is. And this is the problem, I think. This is this is at a, at a kind of a high-level picture where a lot of the issue is coming from that's led to wokeness being able to mainstream. A lot of these people are not, they do, I, I kept talking about how they're scrabbling for 150 bucks. That's on the one side. They're also scrabbling for status. And by the way, just to, I wasn't going to go to this because I forgot about it. <laughs> I'm going to come back to it. I, I wanted to wrap up where I was, but let me just point this out. The scrabbling for status in an, so like, most of your overproduced bourgeoisie isn't poor. They might be tight on money. They might be struggling for money. You hear this a lot from feminists that they aren't doing great for money, that they're doing this out of the love. No, they're scrabbling for status. And what wokeness, for example, gives you is the ability and any of these so-called luxury beliefs. It could be communism. It could be neo-Marxism. It could be liberationism. It could be, um, it could be wokeism. It could be whatever you want, critical social justice or whatever, is the ability to claim moral status. It's the ability to get one up. I am smarter than, I am more moral than, I am more virtuous than my competitor who I'm trying to outcompete, right? So an example of this is, you know, you have this hire, poor hiring person, right, at the university. He's got 200 applicants for one position. What are you going to do? How are you going to narrow them down? Say, hundred of those 200 or even 50 of those 200 are highly qualified. Every one of them deserves a job. What are you going to do? You have one position. Wouldn't it be useful if you had them all write a diversity statement where you could judge them on some total subjective BS according to some ideological thing that makes you feel good about yourself? And you could weed out 77 or 76% of the candidates, which happened at Berkeley in a biology department. So all of a sudden your field of 200 applicants, and I don't know what the numbers were at Berkeley, but I'm saying in, in hypothetical that your 200 applicants become 50 applicants that you now have to wheedle down to one. And you did that without having to look at a single curricula vitae. You didn't have to look at a single resume. You didn't have to look at a single interview. You didn't have to look at anything. You just could have somebody express their values and see if those values line up with the predominant striver values that we're all looking for under diversity, equity, and inclusion. And your DEI statement all of a sudden weeds out 75% of your applicants before you even have to consider them. And all of a sudden you're solving that problem in a way that makes you feel virtuous. And your virtue goes up and you're only going to hire people who are virtuous. And you have this new way to judge, to, to, to you have this way to solve this problem. This is going to be a reliable consequence of this elite overproduction. If you only had 20 people making the application for that job, and 20 is still kind of a lot, you don't have to figure out ways to just to knock 75 to 80% of them off the table for some arbitrary or party-oriented means. If you have a bunch of people who are trying to compete in a space, for example, Substack, they're trying to get people to, they're selling their brand. They want people to come to their Substack. They want people to read their writing. You know, sharp analysis will get you there every time. Content is king. But if you can somehow point out that that person has problematic content, mm, somebody will read them less and maybe read you more because you say they have problematic content. If you can point out how they're a hysterical loon that's overreacting to everything while well, you kept your cool, very smart head, you can direct them to your content rather than to other, and, and, and away from, from, from theirs. So... These are the kinds of things that occur when you have this highly competitive bourgeois overproduction problem. 
you have too many people striving for stuff that like striving for for both money and status within an environment that can't support them all and so positive as i've talked about in the past on on my uh, subscribers only podcast uh positive competition is too expensive whereas negative competition gets incentivized and hey hey critical theory hey hey country club behavior hey hey all this becomes strongly incentivized strongly popularized and um if you have too much of this going on i'm telling you you're this is going to start breeding resentment it's going to start breeding polarization it's going to start breeding fighting it's going to start breeding all kinds of problems and it's that relentless clamoring for status that actually has to be recognized as one of the things that wokeism as a ideology or critical social justice really taps into because it is like the most nasty tool in the world to be able to do some status striving. Uh, it's so easy to lean into your identity group all of a sudden if that gives you a little extra clout. So now you're like soft leaning into uh, standpoint epistemology or even eventually taking on a little bit. Of, well, you know what? You have to rationalize that. I talked about rationalizing. You have to rationalize that. The slope is a little slippery. Um, you have to rationalize that you've leaned into your identity program. So all of a sudden, you know, maybe there is something more to structural determinism, which is the underlying engine, really, of uh, the, the woke ideology that the structures of society, the systems of power shape the outcomes based on identity group. And the next thing you know, you're walking down the road toward accepting more and more structural determinism because you have to rationalize to yourself that you did something gross, which was to use your identity to gain advantage in a status or, or financial situation. Maybe it causes you to try to problematize or humiliate or whatever somebody else um, so that your content, your brand gets elevated because that's really when you're in this bourgeois fake elite position, that's what you're doing. It's what you have to elevate. You are creating sound, sound and fury signifying nothing. And so you have to promote and sell your own brand as its product. Everybody becomes their own brand in this kind of bourgeois overproduced situation. Um, the problem, of course, is that nobody's producing real things, and because it's not real, it can be completely disconnected from reality. It can be smear campaigns that get involved in, those become incentivized. It can be the production of just a bunch of you know, activity that moves a little bit of money and moves a lot of words around, but it's not feeding anybody except the person who you know is collecting the money. So you, wokeism can easily fit into that, but it also can easily grow out of that. These kind of resentment-based ideologies, communism is one of them, liberationism, neo-Marxism is one of them, wokeism is one of them, or a constellation of them. They all kind of grow out of this resentment-based uh, environment or resentment-based environment where I contend this grows the most rapidly and the most effectively within the... Um, overproduced false elite, the overproduced and therefore underemployed false elite within the bourgeoisie, which a society probably benefits from, values, gains value off of, but can only tolerate so much of. And by trying to say, send everybody in the universe to college and everybody's going to get an advanced degree and there's just going to be this. Well, on the one hand, by the way, just to say it, John Green one time, he's an he's a author, um, had a very popular channel, he's very left, used to be a big fan of his, used to say, I want everybody to go to college, why wouldn't I? A more educated society has XYZ value, or, you know, benefits, blah, blah, blah. What downside is there? He had no concept of a downside. Well, the downside is that you overproduce elites that the economy can't absorb. 
He got lucky. He's selling books. He's making videos. He's making bank. He got lucky. He has talent. I'm not going to lie. He's a good writer. He's an, he made sharp videos. They appealed to people. Um, so it's not just luck. Isn't it insulting, Mr. Green, to call it luck? They got you where you were. Isn't that a, isn't that a lot insulting, by the way? Um, but most people in that situation can't do that. And they look at people like John Green and say, why can't I do that? And they start to hate John Green a little bit. And then John Green gets targeted with smear campaigns and cancel campaigns. Because if they could just knock him down a bit, maybe they could elevate. And they're the one who took him down, so they get to elevate themselves. Right? You can see the very poisoned thinking that comes out of this. So the downside to over-educating too many people is that it produces people who are A, strivers, B, underemployed, and C, increasingly resentful of the people who succeeded where they didn't or couldn't. You breed resentment on top of having a more intellectual or more intelligent or more informed or whatever happens to be society. Notice I did that. I pointed out the problem with sending everybody to college without having to talk about what they're even teaching in college. If college is also on top of that, teaching people to think in a critical theory way, to induce them into a critical consciousness, to get them to feel like the need is for them to change society, not just to understand it, and to become activists as a result of getting their degree, you just multiply that problem. You multiply that problem ten times and times and times and times over. So where you don't need very many of the people, 2% of graduates are in things like gender studies. You don't need very many people in these problematizing orbits. And, you know, that's without mentioning, by the way, of course, that like, you know, journalism and every other degree in the freaking universe has all this stuff baked in. I just saw these ads for a variety of colleges saying that their journalism program has a requirement now baked into it for social justice and critical theory and critical race theory. Like you can't get a journalism degree without being steeped in critical theory, which denies objectivity in journalism, for example, and turns it all into this greater shit fest where resentment is king. You can see now how that problem plays out, I think. And so elite overproduction is an issue. Turchin is right. The reason it's an issue is it produces something I refer to as bourgeois overproduction, and a society can only handle so many bourgeois people, so much of a bourgeoisie, and it's going to be a breeding ground for resentment, envy, hate, and hot takes that are going to eventually start dragging society down at the me at the level of the means of cultural production. And I think this is a huge and significant part of understanding how we have got ourselves in this woke mess that we're in now and how it mainstreamed as far as it did.